After eight years of war and nine years shouldering the responsibility of being governor of three provinces, not to mention all of the relentless politicking done during those years, Julius Caesar has earned himself a rest. There will be no rest for the weary, though. Fortunately for Caesar, he's a man famous for his energy. In 51 and 50 BC, after it becomes clear that Gaul is truly conquered, the domestic enemies start circling. Caesar has achieved everything he set out to achieve in his career and more. He's climbed the Cursus Honorum to the highest position and become consul. He's managed to wrangle himself a lucrative proconsular command, and with it he's paid back all of the creditors who have been backing him, and he's made himself rich. More importantly, he's achieved great and lasting military glory in the conquest of Gaul. His dignitas is at an all-time high. And so, ideally, Caesar will return to Rome a conquering hero, and finally everyone in his home city will have to acknowledge him for the great man he is. He'll take his place as Rome's preeminent citizen, or at the very least he'll hold that position jointly with Pompey. Everyone, friend and foe, family and stranger, patrician and plebeian, rich and poor, will have no choice but to give Caesar his due as he triumphs through Rome to celebrate his conquest. Caesar has worked a lifetime towards this reward. But the Optimates have other plans. Their opposition to Caesar and his policies has long since hardened into a sort of pathological hatred. They're still holding a grudge against Caesar for his actions as consul almost 10 years ago, and they plan to prosecute him for these actions. In fact, the only reason they haven't done this already is because as proconsul, Caesar has immunity from prosecution. In fact, over the past few years, Cato has been known to often say that he will impeach Caesar as soon as his army is dismissed, and he has even sworn an oath to do this. And so now Caesar's term as proconsul is nearing its end, and with it, his immunity will end. And so the sharks smell blood in the water, and as I said, they are circling. Caesar is, of course, no fool, and he is well aware of their plans. And he has no intention of being shamefully hauled into court to be tried by his enemies in a trial surrounded by the armed soldiers of Pompey. For make no mistake, that's what trials in Rome have become. Cato has even said that Caesar will be tried like Milo with soldiers surrounding the court. That is the plan. <laughs> Pompey, after being appointed sole consul, brought his armed soldiers into Rome, an illegal and appalling affront to Roman sensibilities and sacrilegious to boot. Pompey, being the consummate organizer he is, used his army to clean up the streets of gangs and stand guard over trials. No longer will gangs be permitted to show up to trials and attack or kill those involved. Milo was one of these men tried in this fashion, and he was duly exiled. Now, Pompey doesn't keep his unique position as sole consul for long. In a magnanimous gesture, seven months into his term, he invites his new father-in-law to be his co-consul. But make no mistake, Pompey still has enormous power in Rome, and in many ways, he is acting as de facto ruler of Rome, with the support of the Senate. And it will continue this way 
even when his consulship ends. Caesar has no intention of putting himself at the mercy of that power. And so what Caesar needs is to win another consulship. This will give him immunity from prosecution for another year. And during this year, if he chooses to, he can use his great power and wealth to gain for himself another great command, almost certainly termed for many years, thus again staving off efforts to prosecute him. He could also reward his veterans with land and confirm his conquests of Gaul. And no doubt he'd also find a way to pass some bills to please the common people. In fact, that's probably a big thing that the optimates are afraid of if Caesar becomes consul, that he will come in with some revolutionary program of legislation. They want no part of that. So Caesar plans to run for the consulship of 48 BC, at which point he will have waited 10 years since his last consulship, as the law requires. Not that Pompey had obeyed that law. The problem in all this is that technically Caesar needs to be physically in Rome to declare and canvass for office. But as proconsul with Imperium, he can't enter the city without laying down his command and losing his Imperium, his immunity. So in order to run for consul, Caesar will need to step down from his proconsulship. This is a non-starter, though, since the second Caesar lays down his command and enters Rome, the Optimates will haul him before a court. So what Caesar really needs is a special dispensation from the Senate giving him permission to stand for consul in absentia. Pompey and Crassus had both been allowed this privilege in the past. It's not unheard of. And this dispensation would allow Caesar to seamlessly move from proconsul to consul and then again to proconsul without ever losing his immunity to prosecution. And it's sort of ironic that the Optimates accuse Caesar of being power-hungry, but one of the main reasons he can't give up power is because they will prosecute him if he does. Not that Caesar isn't power-hungry. He might very well have tried to stay in power even if the Optimates weren't threatening him. Now, in the past, Caesar would have rammed through the required legislation with the help of his fellow triumvirs, Pompey and Crassus. But now Crassus has lost his head and Caesar's daughter Julia, who was married to Pompey, is also dead. So no one is really sure where this leaves the alliance between Caesar and Pompey, Caesar and Pompey included, I think. And now, with the stage set, we begin our game of brinksmanship as the first maneuvers are made in what becomes an ancient arms race. Back in 52 BC, the same year Caesar had won the Battle of Elysia, he had managed, with Pompey's help, to get a law passed by all ten tribunes of the plebs, which would allow him to stand for the consulship in absentia. Caesar also had the understanding that this law confirmed his term as proconsul until 48 BC, when he would become consul. Otherwise, if he had to lay down his command before then, why would he need a specific law allowing him to run in absentia? Later that same year, Pompey passes a law that makes it illegal for anyone to stand for office in absentia. And so, if you're Caesar, you're thinking, was this an oversight or an intentional warning shot? It's sort of impossible to know. So Caesar's allies duly protest this, and in response to this, Pompey adds a clause to his law, creating an exception specifically for Caesar after the law had already been inscribed in bronze. 
and it's unclear if this last-minute addition really had any legal force to it. That year, Pompey also creates a law that requires men to wait five years after their consulship to take a proconsulship. This was meant to break the system of taking on massive debts to win the consulship and then getting a province right after where you could make yourself rich by exploiting the locals and thus pay back your creditors. The idea is that the lenders who lend to these political candidates won't wait five years for their return on investment. Since, with the passing of this law, the recent consuls cannot immediately become proconsuls, Rome has to draw from ex-consuls that had elected not to govern a province in the past. What all this means for Caesar is that rather than getting 18 months' notice if the Senate plans to replace him, he could now be replaced instantly by some ex-consul. That's a problem for Caesar, and again, it's unclear whether Caesar is just collateral damage or if Pompey was fully aware of what this law meant for Caesar. That same year, Pompey also extends his own proconsular command in Spain, further increasing his power. Now, so far, it's quite possible that Pompey wasn't intentionally attacking Caesar. He may just have been reforming the government and didn't think of how these reforms would affect Caesar. And Pompey gathering more power by extending his proconsulship in Spain may possibly just have come down to the fact that the man likes special commands and he likes to feel important. That one I'm not so sure about, though. I think he was probably strengthening himself against the threat of Caesar. So, if this is an arms race, Pompey has just started producing new and bigger missiles, and he has aimed some of those missiles at Caesar, which he assures Caesar was an oversight, an accident. If you're Caesar, this has to worry you. Now, the threats and maneuverings against Caesar have been a little ambiguous up to this point, but this is where that changes. What happens next is the true opening salvo, the first chess move of many in what becomes an extremely complex game of political chess. Like in any arms race, both sides are industriously making themselves stronger in case war comes, even as they claim to want peace, and even as they hold peace talks. Of course, both sides are also balancing the desire to win public opinion with the desire to win the political contest, or to win an actual war if it comes to that. And with regard to peace, it can be difficult to know how committed to peace each side actually is, or if it's all just lip service to appear to want peace in the public eye. As we've said before, Cato runs for the consulship of 51 BC and loses. This is an obvious bullet dodged for Caesar. We can only imagine what would have happened if Cato had been elected. However, a man named Marcus Claudius Marcellus does manage to get elected consul for 51 BC. He is one of three uh, Marcelli, Marcelluses, whatever the, the plural of Marcellus is, Marcelli maybe. He is one of three that will be elected to the consulship in a row. In 51 BC, this Marcellus is elected consul. In 50 BC, his cousin Marcellus is elected consul. And in 49 BC, another Marcellus, the brother to the first Marcellus consul, and cousin to the second Marcellus consul, is elected consul. This first Marcellus is an aristocrat, an optimate, and an enemy of Caesar's. 
So after the Battle of Elysia, Marcellus tries to have Caesar recalled from Gaul early, claiming that since Gaul was already conquered, there's no need for Caesar to serve out the rest of his term. He also effectively tries to cancel Caesar's ability to stand for a consul in absentia by claiming that the law Pompey had passed banning the practice of standing for office in absentia supersedes Caesar's law allowing him to do this. Pompey does not back either of these proposals. With the death of Julia and of Crassus, Caesar and Pompey are nowhere near as close allies as they once were, but by 51 BC, they aren't full-blown enemies yet. There's still some respect and friendship there, even if it is increasingly a mask. So Pompey says that he won't back any proposal that recalls Caesar before his term ends. So at some point in 51 BC, the consul Marcellus seems to have gotten frustrated with his lack of progress against Caesar in the Senate. So he decides to strike at Caesar in a purely spiteful way, a way which is indicative of the utter vitriolic hate the optimates have for Caesar at this point. One of Caesar's three provinces is Cisalpine Gaul, essentially meaning Gaul on this side or the Italian side of the Alps. It corresponds with what is today northern Italy. This province is further divided into a region north of the River Po called Transpadian Gaul and a region to the south of the River Po. Just as today we have states and then we have counties within the states. Well, back when Caesar was consul, he'd established a colony called Novum Comum as part of one of his land bills. This colony was located in Transpadian Gaul, that northern part of Italy, north of the River Po. Now, the people of Caesar's colony, Novum Comum, have what the Romans call Latin rights. This is the next best thing to Roman citizenship. It gives you more rights than a conquered community, but not as many as citizenship. However, each man that becomes a magistrate of a Latin rights community is awarded Roman citizenship. Regardless of this, Caesar has treated all of the people of Transpadian Gaul like citizens for as long as he's been proconsul. Well, Marcellus, the consul, manages to get his hands on one of these ex-magistrates of Novum Comum, who is therefore a Roman citizen. Marcellus then has this man beaten with rods or flogged for some unknown offense. Perhaps there was none at all. This is not only an ugly and brutal thing to do, it's also a massive humiliation. You see, Roman citizens cannot be beaten with rods like this. They are exempt from this punishment. So by seizing and beating this man, Marcellus is making a statement that he doesn't consider this man or others like him to be real Roman citizens. But really, the only reason any of this is being done is because this man comes from a colony founded by Caesar in a province governed by Caesar. In other words, he is a man from Caesar's power base. And if you can't strike at Caesar, the next best thing to do is to attack someone connected to him to show that Caesar can't protect them. And in case anyone missed the point, after the beating, Marcellus tells the man to go back to Caesar and show him his stripes. As you can see, the optimate vitriol for Caesar is ugly, brutal, and very emotional. Cicero writes about this incident to a friend and calls this action by Marcellus disgraceful. But these are the sorts of people Caesar has to negotiate with. 
Also during 51 BC, Marcellus starts trying to get Pompey to take back the legion he had lent to Caesar. Remember, we talked about the first legion which came from a different sequence. That legion was raised in Caesar's territory, but was technically Pompey's legion. In fact, they had even sworn an oath to Pompey. Pompey, being an ally of Caesar at the time, had lent this legion to Caesar. Pompey keeps putting off asking for the return of this legion, saying that he will take back his legion when he's ready, not when Marcellus orders him to. Seeing a dead end there, Marcellus moves forward with other attacks on Caesar. Among other things, he keeps pushing for a debate in the Senate about Caesar's provinces. Pompey responds to this at a Senate meeting by saying that he won't settle anything with regards to Caesar's provinces until March 1st of 50 BC, but that after that date, he won't hesitate. This statement greatly encourages the opponents of Caesar. It seems to them that Pompey's finally coming around to their side. A senator then asks Pompey what he will do if Caesar wants to be consul and keep his army. Pompey responds to what he sees as a stupid question with an equally stupid question, saying, what if my son wants to attack me with a stick? Essentially casting Caesar in the role of his son, who will be disciplined easily if he gets out of line. Eventually, they come to an agreement to discuss Caesar's command on March 1st, 50 BC. This meeting where this is being discussed is in 51 BC, so this debate on Caesar's command will be held in the following year. The state of March 1st, 50 BC, brings up a very important question. When does Caesar's command expire? You would think that this would be an easy question to answer. Caesar's command begins on this date, therefore it ends on that date. But apparently there was disagreement on how the law giving Caesar a five-year extension should be interpreted. Caesar believes that the five-year extension on his command in Gaul was a five-year extension on the five-year term he already had. In other words, the clock on the five-year extension doesn't begin until the first five-year term ends, thus giving Caesar an even ten years as proconsul. This interpretation makes a lot of sense to me. The Optimates, and probably Pompey too, see it differently. They seem to believe that Caesar's five-year extension gives him a five-year term from the date the law was passed, making his command something more like eight years in total. So, March 1st, 50 BC, may have been the date Pompey feels Caesar's command is over, and therefore he's willing to discuss his provinces then. Well, 50 BC rolls around, and on the surface, things aren't looking good for Caesar. Yet another Marcellus is elected consul. He is the cousin of the last Marcellus, and just like his cousin, he hates Caesar. This is despite the fact that he is married to Caesar's great-niece Octavia, who is the older sister to Octavian, who is the man who will become in the future the Emperor Augustus. Now, things may look bleak for Caesar, but not all is as it appears. Rome, of course, has two consuls. The second of these consuls Caesar is able to bring over to his side via a fat bribe. Even more importantly, Caesar lays out enormous sums of money to bribe a young, flashy, talented, and reckless tribune named Curio. We've mentioned Curio before. He was part of the whole Clodius and Mark Antony group. 
Curio is a bold, eloquent, and energetic young man with the love of the common people, a willingness to piss off the Senate, not to mention a penchant for showmanship. Curio has been a vocal opponent of Caesar in the triumvirate in the past, but as a man with staggering debts, when Caesar offers a hefty bribe, or possibly even to pay off his debts in their entirety, Curio hops on over to Caesar's side with enthusiasm. Curio also may have been frustrated by the Senate's opposition to some of the bills he was trying to get passed. This probably only encouraged him to join Caesar, although Appian tells us that Curio intentionally put forward some outlandish bills so that when they got shot down by the Senate, he would have an excuse to flip sides and join Caesar. And having charged so much for his services, Curio is determined to be of great value to Caesar, and he will live up to his price. Well, that magic date of March 1st, 50 BC rolls around when the Senate is supposed to debate Caesar's command. The Senate meets, and Marcellus the consul proposes that someone should be sent to replace Caesar in Gaul. Probably to his surprise, his co-consul is silent and doesn't back the motion. Remember, Caesar has bribed this man. The Senate then debates the idea of sending a replacement for Caesar, but when the debate comes to Curio, he seconds Marcellus's motion, but adds to it that if Caesar has to give up his command and legions, Pompey should too. Suddenly, Pompey and the Optimates are on the back foot. Caesar, through Curio, has gone on the offensive and regained the initiative. No longer is he defending his own position, now he's going after Pompey's position and treating himself as an equal to Pompey. But what gives this proposal teeth is that Caesar's saying he is willing to relinquish command as long as Pompey does the same. It's such a reasonable compromise that it's hard to fight against it without looking unreasonable and unfair. And it's a big risk for Caesar who will be giving up his army and his immunity before he can run for consul. Curio goes on to say that with this proposal enacted, the Republic will be free from the threat of Caesar and Pompey. He also says that if they strip Caesar of his command, but leave Pompey in his command, then they will be accusing one man of seeking tyranny while making the other a tyrant. Meaning that while they accuse Caesar of seeking to be a tyrant, they will be making Pompey into an actual unopposed tyrant. Now, if the Optimates really have the best interests of the Republic in mind, they should agree to this. Sure, they won't be able to punish Caesar for his actions as consul, which they see as illegal, but civil war will be avoided, and that's huge. But the Optimates don't support this fair proposal because they aren't looking out for the Republic. They're trying to win against Caesar. Plain and simple. Beating and humiliating Caesar has become more important to them than protecting the Republic and the people of Rome. Pompey doesn't support the proposal either, but for different reasons. First, Pompey's command still has years left on it. In his estimation, Caesar's command is already up, and therefore it's apples to oranges. One is a case of a commander whose command is already over, meaning Caesar, and the other is a case of a commander who still has years left on his command, meaning Pompey. But far more importantly, Pompey cannot abide the idea of Caesar being treated as his equal. In fact, many years later, looking back on these events, 
the Roman poet Lucan will write the famous lines, quote, Caesar could not accept a superior, nor Pompey an equal, end quote. And I'd say that's spot on. Caesar believes that his great conquests in Gaul entitle him to return to Rome as Pompey's equal. Pompey's pride will not accept this. And that's a big reason for Pompey's siding with the Optimates. He isn't an inveterate Caesar hater like the Optimates. What motivates Pompey is that his pride cannot allow him to put Caesar on equal terms, and more than likely, he feels threatened by Caesar. After all, if Caesar comes back an equal, Caesar's superior political skills will allow him to quickly outmaneuver Pompey and therefore grow stronger than Pompey and eventually outshine Pompey. Well, Appian says that many in the Senate oppose Curio's motion on the grounds that Pompey's command hasn't expired yet, and Caesar's has. I imagine this reasoning is just a pretext for not wanting Caesar to escape prosecution. Curio doubles down and becomes more obstinate, saying that both men are suspicious of each other, and therefore there can be no lasting peace unless both Caesar and Pompey are made into private citizens without provinces or armies. Again, this is very reasonable, and it makes a lot of sense. But still, the Senate resists the proposal, and it goes nowhere. Eventually, the meeting breaks up, and afterward, Curio is cheered by the plebeians, the common people. They escort him home and shower him with flowers. They see him as being the only man willing to go against Pompey and Caesar in the interests of peace. Of course, they don't seem to be aware that he is working for Caesar, but more importantly, this reaction from the populace shows that they want peace more than anything. This argument over whether both men should lay down their commands or just Caesar turns into a deadlock that lasts for months. Anytime the Senate tries to put forward proposals about Caesar's command, Curio vetoes it. The Senate starts demanding Caesar leave his province by November 13th, which Pompey seems to back. Curio continues to veto these proposals, saying that Caesar's command should not be discussed separately from Pompey's. Either they both lay down their commands, or neither does. In April of 50 BC, Callius, a friend of Curio's and protege to Cicero, writes a letter to Cicero and gives him an update on the situation. Remember, both of these guys, or Callius is the one writing, but he is a contemporary on these events. In this letter, Callius writes, quote, This is the scene, the whole thing. Pompey, just as if he was not attacking Caesar, but making a fair settlement for him, blames Curio for making trouble. At the same time, he, meaning Pompey, is absolutely against Caesar becoming consul before giving up his province and army. He is getting a rough ride from Curio, and his entire third consulship is attacked. You mark my words, if they try to crush Curio with all their might, Caesar will come to the rescue. If instead, as seems most likely, they are too frightened to risk it, then Caesar will stay as long as he wants. End quote. June of 50 BC comes around, and surprisingly, the consul Marcellus suggests negotiating with the tribunes to break the deadlock. The Senate rejects this, though. <laughs> now there begins to be talk of sending either Pompey or Caesar to Syria to fight the Parthians. That region of the empire is still dealing with fallout from Crassus' disastrous invasion. 
This idea is scrapped, though, with the Optimates unwilling to let Caesar go and obtain any more glory and power, and yet unwilling to let Pompey go either, afraid that they will lose their protector from Caesar if he does. Essentially, the Optimates see Pompey as the only thing standing between them and the evil Caesar. Now, as I said earlier, this whole contest is like an ancient arms race. Both sides want the other to disarm, but neither wants to disarm themselves. Now, in the case of nuclear weapons, it's the threat of mutually assured destruction that keeps both sides negotiating and looking for common ground. In this case, it's the threat of civil war that keeps both sides negotiating. The problem is, while no one can win a nuclear holocaust, a civil war can very much have a winner. So, of course, when trying to come to an arms control agreement, there has to be some level of trust between the two sides. Trust that the other side is negotiating in good faith and actually wants to de-arm, rather than secretly plotting to win the potential civil war. In this case, there is very little trust, but it's about to crash to zero. You see, a different solution to the Parthian problem is proposed. The idea is put forward that, to be fair to both sides, both Pompey and Caesar should each send one of their legions to Syria to fight the Parthians. This way, the empire can be protected, and neither man is disadvantaged more than the other. This would be your ancient arms control agreement, to lower the amount of weapons on each side, and to establish trust that both sides will abide by their agreement and lower the tensions. Both Pompey and Caesar agree to this idea as it seems fair and reasonable. So, Caesar says he will give up the 15th legion. And Pompey says he will give up the 1st legion. Wait a second, wait a second. The 1st legion is the legion Pompey had lent to Caesar. Pompey has pulled the infamous legion switcheroo. He is essentially trying to trick Caesar into giving up two legions, while Pompey gives up no legions. Pompey has taken this fair compromise designed to keep the balance of power, build trust, and decrease the size of both men's armies, and instead, he's attempting to use it to gain advantage in a potential civil war. Any trust that Julius Caesar had that Pompey and the Optimates were equally committed to de-escalating the situation and finding a peaceful resolution has gone out the window. It is crystal clear now that Pompey and the Optimates are not negotiating in good faith. They are trying to win this contest against Caesar. They are not trying to come to an agreement. Despite all of this, Caesar decides to send both of the legions to join the Parthian War anyway, depriving him of two legions and Pompey of none. Caesar is still intent on coming to a negotiated peace, and he is still trying to win the war for public opinion. Obeying the dictates of Pompey and the Senate, even when they are being this slippery and conniving, will show the neutrals that he really is intent on making peace. Because, keep in mind, most people are not on Caesar or Pompey in the Optimate sides. Most people are in the middle, and they just want peace. And that's often the way it is, with two opposing and extreme minorities dragging the silent majority into civil strife. Now, if Caesar still had any doubts in his mind that Pompey and the Optimates are negotiating in bad faith, they now make it abundantly clear. Caesar sends his two legions to Italy to then be sent to the Parthian War. Before they leave, he gives every soldier a bonus of 250 denarii. 
That is more than a year's wage for a soldier. Insurance that they will continue to be positively disposed to Caesar if it comes to civil war. Well, these two legions march down to Capua near modern Naples, and they just sit there. They aren't sent to the east to fight the Parthians as promised. This is an outrageous act of bad faith. Pompey and the Senate have tricked Caesar into giving up two of his legions under false pretenses. It's very hard to see how they can be trusted in any future negotiations. Now, Pompey's trick may have worked, but this whole incident inadvertently leads to disastrous consequences for Pompey and the Optimates. A young nobleman is sent to take command of these two legions from Caesar. When this young nobleman returns with the two legions, he tells tales of Caesar's army being disaffected, even near rebellion, having been worn out by all the campaigning Caesar has dragged them through. All they desire is to go home, and they are suspicious Caesar wants to make himself a tyrant. This young nobleman goes on to tell Pompey that Caesar's soldiers hate him so much and love Pompey so much that as soon as Pompey appears, they will defect to Pompey. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. And it's hard to know whether this was an intentional scheme by Caesar, or if the man spreading this information was just an uninformed dummy. It's common when two sides are engaged in an arms race or a cold war for both sides to do and say everything they can to make themselves appear stronger than they actually are. It can be a form of deterrence to avoid war. There's the famous story of Nikita Khrushchev declaring that the Soviet Union was producing missiles like sausages. Of course, this was just a bluff. The USSR had only half a dozen ICBMs at the time. But if Caesar has bribed this young nobleman to do the opposite of what Khrushchev was doing, to trick his enemies into thinking he is weaker than he really is, well, that doesn't look so much like deterrence then. That looks a lot more like someone who is actively courting war, a war he intends to win. But given all the lengths Caesar goes to to try to negotiate a peaceful settlement, this seems unlikely to me. I think it's far more likely a combination of ignorance and wishful thinking on the part of the young aristocrat and of Pompey and the Optimates. Anyway, around it, this piece of false intelligence is one of multiple factors that will lead Pompey down a disastrous course. You see, the Senate and the Optimates can only be as inflexible and hard-headed as they are when negotiating with Caesar because they have the backing of Pompey, Rome's greatest general. If not for Pompey, they'd have to treat Caesar sitting above Rome at the head of his veteran legions with more deference. So the Optimates and the Senate take their confidence from Pompey. The problem is, Pompey is overconfident. We already saw him compare Caesar to his son attacking him with a stick. A ridiculous idea and an easy problem to solve. It's in part statements like this that will lead the Optimates to dig in their heels and back Caesar into a corner. Pompey hearing that Caesar's legions are mutinous and ready to defect to his side only increases this false sense of confidence. Because of course, if you think your opponent's army won't fight for him, it's going to lead you to overplay your hand. And all of this being the case, the nightmare scenario strikes for the Optimates. Pompey falls dangerously ill. Pompey is in Naples at the time, or Neapolis as it was known then, 
And when the people of Neapolis hear that he has fallen dangerously sick, they begin praying and offering sacrifices for his good health. The neighboring communities and towns and cities hear of this, and they join in and begin praying and sacrificing. This spreads, and soon the whole of Italy is offering sacrifices in the hope that it will restore Pompey's health. No doubt, due to all these sacrifices and prayers, Pompey makes a full recovery. And when word spreads, all of Italy holds festivals and thanksgivings lasting for days. People throng to see Pompey. So many people that they clog the roads, the villages, and the ports, everywhere partying and celebrating his recovery. On his journey back to Rome, Pompey's way is led by torchbearers wearing garlands as people throw flowers at him. It's all a magnificent show of appreciation for a man who has provided countless great services to the people of Rome. But given Pompey's love and need for adoration, what do you imagine this does to his mental state? Well, Pompey's already inflated ego begins to balloon from all this. If all of Italy is behind him, how can Caesar worry him? No need for preparations against Caesar. No need to compromise with Caesar. Pompey begins to show contempt for Caesar and to mock and laugh at those afraid of civil war. When some in the Senate express concerns to Pompey that they see no army to defend Rome if Caesar marches on the city, Pompey replies with a calm smile and says that he has but to stamp upon the earth to fill Italy with armies. It's comments like this that cause the optimates and the Senate to be just as overconfident as Pompey. Now, going back a little, when Pompey was laying sick in Naples, he sent a letter to the Senate. In this letter, he stated that he would give up his command even though his term was not up. Our ancient source for this part of the story is Appian, and Appian says Pompey did this to make a show of how fair he was being and to rouse resentment against Caesar since Caesar wasn't going to give up his command even though his enemies say his term is up and here Pompey is giving up his and his term is not even up. Of course, Caesar can't give up his command or he will be hauled before a hostile court controlled by Pompey. Upon arriving back in Rome and healthy again, Pompey speaks to the Senate and again says he will give up his command and then says that Caesar will happily lay down his command too. Of course, Pompey and Caesar haven't come to any sort of agreement on this and this is a high-handed move on the part of Pompey. And Appian says the reason for Pompey saying all this is so that replacements will be sent to take over Caesar's provinces while Pompey himself is just bound by a promise to step down. In other words, Pompey never said when he would step down. This is yet another trick. Not a very clever one, but a trick. I think Cicero's protege, Caelius, who, as I said before, is a contemporary on these events, hit the nail on the head when he wrote of Pompey, quote, For he is accustomed to think one thing and say another, and yet is not clever enough to conceal his real aims. End quote. Curio, Caesar's bribed tribune of the plebs, sees right through this trick by Pompey. He says to Pompey, What we need is not a promise of resignation, but an immediate resignation. Caesar will lay down his command when Pompey does. And in fact, Pompey should lay down his command first. He even flips the script, essentially saying that it isn't Pompey you need to protect you from Caesar, but Caesar you need to protect you from Pompey. 
or the very least that you need both of them to protect you from each other or neither of them, but to leave one in power and not the other is dangerous. And he has a point with regards to Pompey being an unacknowledged danger to the Republic, or perhaps a danger that is somehow being overshadowed by this fear and hatred of Caesar. After all, Pompey is de facto dictator or tyrant of Rome, and even has soldiers inside the city. Curio then begins attacking Pompey personally, saying that Pompey is aiming for supreme power. Curio then demands that both men lay down their commands or both be labeled public enemies and troops should be levied to fight against them. Of course, this is a ridiculous, ludicrous idea with no teeth to it. There is no chance of them, the Republic, raising armies of green recruits to suddenly fight Rome's two greatest generals at the same time. (laughs) Curio is just trying to hide the fact that he's been bribed by Caesar by appearing to be neutral. Pompey gets angry at this attack, and after threatening Curio, he storms out of the Senate meeting. Now, in any arms race, it's essential to have a good understanding of what the other side is doing with their arms. Miscalculations on this front can be disastrous. This is one of the big reasons the U.S. and the Soviet Union put so much effort into spying during the Cold War. There's the famous story of the Soviet soldier Stanislav Petrov, who got a false reading on his radar in 1983 that the U.S. had launched not one, but five missiles at the Soviet Union. In that climate, at that time in the Cold War, it could and probably was assumed that these missiles were nuclear weapons. So a false understanding of what the other side is doing with their weapons like this could be catastrophic. Stanislav was supposed to pick up the phone to tell his superiors so they could launch an immediate counter-strike against the U.S. Luckily for the entire world, Stanislav decided not to pick up the phone that day and took the gamble that it was a false reading. He was right. Ancient Rome doesn't have to worry about nuclear holocausts, but it's also not so lucky as to have cool-headed, reasonable men at its helm seeking peace and showing restraint. In October 50 BC, wild rumors spread through an increasingly paranoid Rome that Caesar has concentrated four legions in northern Italy for an attack. Like the radar reading of American missiles the Soviet soldiers saw, this rumor is false. Caesar only has one legion in northern Italy, and he is not concentrating his forces, and he is not planning an attack at this point. Fortunately, this spark does not lead to war, but it does ratchet up the tension in Rome, and these sorts of false rumors will continue to push the Republic towards war. At this point, Rome is suffering what you might call collective PTSD flashbacks. The civil wars between Marius and Sulla are still in living memory. Pompey fought in those wars. Many Romans lived through those terrible times. Many others died, either on the battlefield of civil war or in political purges by Marius and Sola. No one could forget Marius strolling through the streets of Rome with bands of slaves at his side, killing anyone Marius didn't salute back. No one could forget the prescription lists or death lists Sola routinely posted in Rome. These events were seared into many of Romans' minds, and so they had no illusions about what civil war will mean for them. Cicero, who is living through all these events, wrote about his concerns in December of 50 BC, saying, quote, 
for no one can be certain of the result when once we come to fighting. But everyone is certain that, if the loyalists are beaten, this man, meaning Caesar, will not be more merciful than Cinna in the massacre of the nobility, nor less rapacious than Sola in confiscating the property of the rich. End quote. In that same letter, Cicero also vents his frustration on the poor way in which this whole contest with Caesar has been handled from the beginning. He's confounded that Pompey and the Optimates have waited until Caesar has become this powerful to challenge him. And at this point, Caesar is so powerful that going against him will have disastrous consequences that won't be good for anyone. He writes, quote, We should have resisted him when he was weak. That would have been easy. Now we are confronted by 11 legions, cavalry at his desire, the Transpandani, the city rabble, all these tribunes, a rising generation corrupted as we see, a leader of such influence and audacity. With such a man, we must either fight a pitched battle or admit his candidature in virtue of the law. Fight, you say, rather than be a slave. To what end? To be prescribed if beaten? To be a slave after all, victorious? End quote. At some point during the fall of 50 BC, censors are elected. Fortunately for Caesar, one of the censors is his father-in-law. Unfortunately for Caesar, the other censor is a man named Appius Claudius, older brother to the infamous Claudius of the street gangs. Appius Claudius has supported Caesar in the past, but now he has made an abrupt about-face and is a full-throated optimate. In what many in Rome see as a farce, Appius Claudius, who doesn't have a very sterling reputation, starts purging the Senate of men he feels are unfit to be in the Senate. In these purges, Appius Claudius seems to fixate mainly on men who support Caesar. It's certainly a clever strategy, if not particularly designed to build trust and goodwill with Caesar. If you can't get what you want in the Senate because Caesar has too many supporters, why simply eject his supporters from the Senate? Of course, this just adds to Caesar's growing sense that the Optimates are not negotiating in good faith. Caesar's father-in-law doesn't seem to have had much of a stomach to stand up to Appius Claudius either. One of the men purged from the Senate is the historian Sallust. Like others purged, he leaves Rome to join Caesar. But when Appius Claudius tries to purge Curio from the Senate, finally, Caesar's father-in-law joins forces with the consul Caesar had bribed to put a stop to this. Giving up on his attempt to throw Curio out of the Senate, Appius Claudius gives a speech telling the Senate what he really thinks of Curio. And it must have been one heck of a character assassination because Curio becomes so enraged that he ends up tearing the censor Appius' robes as a brawl breaks out in the Senate. In the end, despite the consul Marcellus' attempt to hold Curio to account for this fight, Curio keeps his seat in the Senate. December 1st of 50 BC rolls around and another Senate meeting is held. Again, the debate is Caesar's command. Caesar's enemies really want to separate these two issues of Pompey relinquishing his command and Caesar relinquishing his command. They feel that these are two different issues that have nothing to do with each other. So they put forward two different proposals. The first, should a successor be sent to take over Caesar's command? The majority of the Senate votes in favor of this. The second proposal asks if Pompey should be deprived of his command. Most of the Senate votes against this. This is not a good look for Caesar. Clearly, Pompey has more support than he does in the Senate. 
But then up pops Curio, and he begins doing what he has been doing all year long. He starts tying these two issues together. He puts forward a third proposal saying that both Caesar and Pompey should lay down their commands. The Senate votes on this, and 370 senators vote yes, and only 22 vote against it. So it's now clear that most senators want both of these men to lay down their commands. They just want to avoid civil war. They want peace. Only a small minority are against this idea. This small minority are made up of most of the great names of the Republic. The oligarchy of the Republic, if you will. The Optimates. The Consul Marcellus then ignores all of these votes and dismisses the meeting in disgust, saying to the senators, quote, Have your way. Be slaves to Caesar. End quote. Shortly after this December Senate meeting, a new rumor sweeps through Rome. Caesar has massed his legions and marched on Rome. Caesar is coming, and the war has begun. Only, again, this rumor is false. Caesar hasn't massed his legions, and he hasn't marched on Rome. But no one in Rome knows this. And as we said before, there is quite a jumpy atmosphere in Rome, and Rome is not being led by men exhibiting rational self-restraint. So in response to these rumors, the Senate meets, and at this meeting, the Consul Marcellus urges the senators to name Caesar a public enemy and to use the two legions sitting at Capua against him. Remember, these are the two legions Caesar had handed over for the war against Parthia. Marcellus wants to use Caesar's own legions against him. Probably not the best idea. Curio rejects all of this, and tells everyone that stories of Caesar invading Italy are false rumors. After debating this, the majority of the Senate is still looking to avoid war, and so they vote against Marcellus's proposal. In response to this, Plutarch tells us, quote, Marcellus, however, rose and declared that he would not sit there listening to speeches, but since he saw ten legions already looming up in their march over the Alps, he himself also would send forth a man who would oppose them in defense of his country. End quote. Undeterred by the Senate voting against him, Marcellus takes it upon himself to pull one of the great idiotic moves of all time. Whatever the restrained and cautious thing to do to avoid pushing the two sides into civil war would have been, Marcellus does the exact opposite. With no permission from the Senate, and therefore no legal authority, this man, who is an optimate and therefore defender of the traditional Roman government and the rights of the Senate, goes with the consuls-elect to Pompey and presents Pompey with a sword and says to him, quote, I and my colleague command you to march against Caesar on behalf of your country, and we give you for this purpose the army now at Capua, or in any other part of Italy, and whatever additional forces you yourself choose to levy. End quote. Not only is Marcellus not working toward peace, he seems to be attempting to hurl his city headlong into civil war. Of all the things Marcellus could have done, this was probably the single most inflammatory. What's more, None of this is legal, while at the same time accusing Caesar of being a self-serving tyrant who ignores the law and tramples on the authority of the Senate, Marcellus has ignored the Senate's wishes and without legal authority has handed over two legions to Pompey and ordered him to march against Caesar. And to be clear, 
Caesar is the furthest thing from an angel, and he has routinely broken the law and gone against the Senate when it suits him. But he hasn't been the one depicting himself as the defender of the Senate's authority and of traditional Roman laws and customs. The Optimates have. And one more thing, the consul Marcellus who has given Pompey this sword and commanded him to fight Caesar, when civil war does eventually come, and it will come, this man who has done so much to push his countrymen into civil war will declare himself neutral and refuse to fight in the civil war. And he will not be the only Optimate to do this. And let's not forget that Pompey and the Optimates have now tricked Caesar into giving up two legions under false pretext that they have now given to Pompey instead of sending to the Parthian War. We've already said it's become difficult for Caesar to trust Pompey and the Optimates in peace negotiations. Now it's become downright impossible. And as for Pompey, the man who loves more than anything to be the center of attention and to be given special commands... The man who loves when everyone needs to depend on him as the great man? How do you think he reacts to this sword and this request to save the city from Caesar? Well, of course, Pompey happily accepts these two legions and the order to defend the city against Caesar. Pompey then begins recruiting troops to swell his army, but Plutarch tells us that Pompey had a hard time recruiting. Some of the troops refuse his summons. Others come reluctantly. Most of them, we are told, cry out that they want a peaceful settlement to all of this. This is not a foreign war where an appeal to patriotism will work. This is a civil war. Nobody wants to be involved in this. Despite all of this posturing by the Optimates and Pompey, no aggressive moves are actually made outside of the recruiting. Probably this is largely due to the fact that Caesar has not in fact invaded Italy and that any troops recruited are the definition of green and won't stand a chance against Caesar's hardened veterans. They also don't want to be the ones blamed for starting this civil war. Pompey, as a proconsul with Imperium, cannot enter the city. He's staying just outside of Rome. Curio, as a tribune, has the opposite problem. He's not allowed to leave Rome. So when Marcellus goes to illegally gift this sword to Pompey and all the powers that come with it, Curio couldn't be there to obstruct it. Nevertheless, Curio publicly denounces this move by Marcellus the consul and demands that the consuls make a proclamation for citizens to ignore Pompey's recruitment. Before Curio is able to get anywhere with this, his term in office runs out. Upon his term expiring, and with it the protections of the office of Tribune, Appian tells us Curio flees Rome in fear for his life, and take shelter with Caesar. Presumably, he felt that he had pissed off so many powerful men, Rome was not safe for him anymore. Meanwhile, back in Rome, the warmongering attitude seems to be increasing by the day. Some men even seem to be motivated by the prospect of profiting from this war. In early December, when Cicero met with Pompey, he says that Pompey seemed to already assume the existence of downright war. Pompey said at this meeting that Caesar's friend and subordinate in Gaul, Hertius, the man who wrote the final book of the Gallic Wars, had visited Rome a few days before and had only stayed a few hours, not even bothering to meet with Pompey. There was even a meeting scheduled between one of Caesar's agents, Balbus, 
and Pompey's father-in-law the next day, and yet Hertius left Rome the night before the meeting and skipped it. Pompey seems to have interpreted all of this as Caesar being uninterested in further peace dialogues, hence Pompey assuming war already exists. This warlike attitude will continue to progress in Pompey, and by late December, Cicero will say Pompey doesn't even seem to have a wish for peace. And with that, 50 BC ends, and the fateful year of 49 BC rolls around. The consuls in office in 49 BC look even more worrying for Caesar than they had in 50 BC. One of the consuls is yet another Marcellus, the third Marcellus. He is brother to the first consul Marcellus and cousin to the second consul Marcellus. So as you can imagine, he isn't a big fan of Caesar. The second consul that year is a man named Lucius Cornelius Lentulus Crus. We'll simply call him Lentulus. Cicero describes Lentulus as having an utter aversion to the trouble of thinking. What a great roast. I love these ancient Roman roasts. They are the best. Caesar claims Lentulus bragged that he wanted to be a second Sulla. Remember, Sulla's the man who marched on Rome to put citizens to death. Lentulus will turn out to be far more extreme in his stance against Caesar than the third Marcellus. But it's not all bad news for Caesar, though. Luckily, he's managed to get two men loyal to him elected tribunes. The first is Quintus Cassius Longinus, who is not the same Cassius that will eventually assassinate Caesar. The second of these men, and far more important, is Mark Antony. Now, I have mentioned Mark Antony a number of times in this podcast so far, but I've never formally introduced him as a main character in our story. Well, starting now, he begins to come out on center stage. Antony actually was a distant relative of Caesar's, and it seems he didn't have the easiest childhood, with his father dying when he was nine and his subsequent stepfather being put to death by Cicero as one of the Catalinarian conspirators. Antony will grow up into a bull of a man with the personality to match. In fact, people will often compare Antony to Hercules, which his family claimed to be descended from, and he even sports a beard and dresses the part to match Hercules. We are told Antony showed great promise in his youth, but was then corrupted by Curio, who introduced him to drinking, womanizing, and lavish spending. This lavish spending led to crushing debts. This wild lifestyle led him to eventually have to flee Rome and go east for a time. There, Antony found his talents lied in war. An exceptionally brave soldier and gifted battlefield commander, his willingness to banter, eat, and drink with his men will win him their devotion throughout his life. Antony is a combustible personality and seemed to engage in anything he did with gusto, passion, and excessive showmanship. With a strong force of personality and a physique like Hercules, he is not an easy man to intimidate. Just the man Caesar needs to hold his ground against the combined weight of all the august men in the Senate. And that is where we'll end today, with Antony taking over for Curio as Caesar's tribune in Rome, and the fateful year of 49 BC about to begin. And in our next episode, the moment we've all been waiting for, Caesar will make his legendary crossing of the Rubicon 
launching the entire Mediterranean into war and forever changing the world. Thank you to our patrons, our growing Roman army, Ray, Giancarlo, Peggy, Carrie, Scott, Laurie, Liga, Dave, and Tony. Also, if you prefer one-time payments and you enjoyed this episode, you can send a tip via PayPal or Venmo. The link for both of those is also in the show notes of this episode and every other episode. A dollar a show is all I ask, though any amount you can send is much appreciated. Don't forget to leave the show a rating, and don't forget to share the March of History with just one person you think would enjoy this podcast. Like I've always said, it does wonders for growing the show, and the audience is growing every single episode. And finally, we have our ending quote. Quote, You philosophers are lucky men. You write on paper, and paper is patient. Unfortunate empress that I am, I write on the susceptible skins of living beings. End quote. And that is a quote by Catherine the Great. That is all. I am your host, Trevor Furness, and I will talk to you on the next episode of the March of History.